and welcome to another edition of Rock and Talk with Dak, your podcast for any and all things music. Each week we talk about something in the world of music, bands, albums, artwork, news, and reviews. Be sure to subscribe to the feed on Apple and Google Podcasts as well as Spotify. Check out Instagram for Song of the Day and head over to Twitter to give feedback or just to say hi. I'm your host, The Dak. Let's dive into today's episode. But first I want to say, wow, it hasn't been some weird times. I'm not usually one to talk about current events or curling dealings going on, but I feel like it would be a bit disingenuous to, to just not mention it. Coronavirus. That's been going around. It's disrupting all of our daily lives. Millions of people around the world are staying home, hunkering down, and there's several countries that are pretty much just shutting down. There's, you know, let's not mention the locust swarms in Africa, Australia. At the beginning of March, I think it was March 4th, in fact, they finally extinguished all the fires. The first time that there haven't been any fires since last July. Think about that. And then, you know, locally here in Salt Lake City, we had an earthquake this last Wednesday. It's all a little bit ad nauseum. And sometimes it really does feel like the world's on fire. But today, I want to not focus on the craziness outside, but instead bring some joy to the day while we all hunker down. Remember, we're all in this together. We all have a, a part to play during this crisis, this pandemic. And soon... It's going to be but a fleeting glimpse. Some things will change, but we're going to get back to routine before you know it. So with the doom and gloom out of the way, let's hop into today's episode, which is actually a part one of two. I'm going to go over my top ten albums of last decade. So that's five today, five next week. Um, Reason being, I wanted to be able to talk about each one a bit more than just a few minutes to keep within a reasonable time frame. Granted, these episodes are still going to be a little bit longer and... I'm aware that we're now three, almost four months into uh, 2020, but I wanted to take a look back at some of my favorite albums from the last 10 years, share my thoughts, and do the hard thing and list them out. And I do mean hard. In my first list, I wound up listing, God, what, 30, 40 plus albums when I first started thinking of this episode. And then I had to distill what my music taste of the last 10 years was all about and bring the town to just 10. And these albums, they aren't necessarily groundbreaking or they sold like crazy. They're just my picks of what I think of when I think of music from the 2010s. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's for me. It's not necessarily like top selling sort of stuff. Uh, these albums, they're not listed in any sort of ranking except for chronological order. When, I don't know if I mentioned this in the last episode, when I get to talking about music, I don't, I don't like using any big music theory terms. Not that I've really taken a dive into music theory. I know a little bit just from days of music classes in high school. Um, but that can be a little bit alienating, and I understand that. And that's not to say, if, by all means, I can recommend some great channels on YouTube if you want that sort of stuff. But, you know, I'm here to have fun. I mentioned that before, and I certainly don't want to alienate anyone by using those weird terms. That's not to say I won't slip one in here and there, but anyway, let's get to it. So, we start the decade off with uh, Gautier, and it's his third studio album, Making Mirrors, which was released in 2011. Most everyone knows him because of one song. That is, somebody that I used to know. But 
I got to tell you, the rest of this album is just a collection of amazing, well-written songs. You have this balance of uplifting and somber lyrics. Um, the music is really, for me, overall, it's just fun and innovative. It's one of those albums that flows from beginning to end. Uh, there aren't any songs that I want to skip. Everything has its place. The album starts with a slower, it's very mellow, one-minute song. It's the title track, Making Mirrors. And then once that ends, it jumps right into Easy Way Out. And on this song, it's a little musical moment in the intro, and I love it. So it's up-tempo, it's just the guitar, the whole band kind of going for 17 seconds. And that 17 seconds is important, because after which the first lyrics are... Come on, he didn't need to do that. It's just a fun little thing. Then it gets into that one song that I used to know. I, I mean, somebody that I used to know. Don't get me wrong. I really enjoy the song, especially being older now, having gone through breakup of my own. I understand it a lot more, but it's heard everywhere. And if you were to ask anyone about Gautier, chances are somebody is going to respond back with something about this song. So I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, next up is Eyes Wide Open, and it's darker, both lyrically and musically. Lyrically, I've interpreted it as it's about our over-consumerism and our environmental impact because of it. The idea that we know what's going on can't be sustained, but we keep going forward as we have been anyway. It's a darker message. Musically, a little bright side on the music part of it, it really showcases why I like OTA. And I enjoy his songwriting so much. So the bassline in the song, when it first opens, there's this down kind of sound going on. He recorded that on what's called the Winton Musical Fence, which is close to where he lives in Australia. And it's exactly what it is. It's a fence, wires strung between posts. Now, I don't know if there's like something special with the wires, if they're a special gauge or something. I don't know. But anyway, people record on it all the time. So he recorded himself plucking the wires, took that to the studio, put it in the computer, and obviously altered it a little bit digitally, but that's how he got the baseline. And I love that. Uh, I have a, an appreciation for Foley artists, uh, the sound people in movies, and that's pretty much what this is just for music. I love it. God, I can't talk about every single one of these songs, even though I want to. Uh, so I'm going to jump over to In Your Light, probably my favorite song off of the album. The song is Driven, and starts off with the acoustic guitar. And the moment it starts, you just know it's, it's just light and fun. It has the atmosphere in, in the chords played on that acoustic guitar. That's that's the, your feeling. Like so much so, I could set this as an alarm every day. And it's I know it's going to set my mood right. I love it. So for me, it's about being in love. It's you know, being with that special person that can take away whatever bad you're experiencing in the moment. Another little musical moment is when he sings, it may only be a moment. And right when he ends that, all instruments stop for just a split second. It's a really small thing, but I like it. It's those little tiny artistic choices. Um, like I said, my favorite song off the album. I Go check it out. State of the Art. This is the most experimental song on the album, and I love it for its weirdness. There really aren't any words to describe it. Um, you just have to go check it out for yourself. It's a love letter to a piece of recording equipment called the Cotillion D575. 
And best way to explain that, it's pretty much like a mobile, small electronic organ. Easiest way to explain it. Um, Gautier sings into a vocoder talk box on this song, which allows him to digitally alter his voice. So on this song, he drops his voice way down. He's singing deep, and it's clearly digital. Um, again, I can't really explain it. You'd have to go check it out for yourself. It's fantastic. Um, recently, I came across a video of them doing like a live studio version. So he's singing into, you know, he has it all hooked up where he sings, you hear that voice. It's super cool. I love it. Getting into the last four songs. I know I've skipped some. We're already at the end, but wanted to get going. These songs are slower, a little more somber, but they still close out the album really well, I think. They have this uh, air of depression with a gleam of hope, I suppose. And I think the penultimate track, Save Me, really highlights that well. Though it was a digital track only, Dig Your Own Hole is another fun song. In the chorus, there's this guitar playing, I think it's just two chords, that goes... And I just dig it. It sounds so cool. It's very minimal. And then the lyrics, as the title suggests, it talks about not learning from your mistakes and winding up right back where you started. It's, it's really cool. So, to put a bow on this one wrap it up, Making Mirrors is a fantastic record. It's, it's easy listening. Like, you could put it on when you're cooking dinner or something. Uh, musically and lyrically... You have these light and dark tones, it's fun, it's sad, it's somber at times, but for me it's really well blended, it's balanced. A uh, quick note on the artwork too, I believe it was Gautier's dad who actually painted that years before this album came out, before it was even an idea. Gautier was just going through boxes or something and came across it, um, and I love it. It's one of those album covers, at least for me, having listened to the album and then seeing the artwork. Like, the artwork somehow informs you what you're going to listen to. It's, at least for me, I, I like it. I'm sad that he hasn't done anything new music for the last nine years. He's been busy, just <laughs> not making new music. Hopefully that changes. It's a new, new year, new decade, so who knows. So, go check it out for yourself. Somebody that I used to know, again, good song, but the rest of the album deserves a listen as well. Next up, heading into 2012, another end-of-the-world year. Bad joke, I know. We get the last studio album from the prog rock trio, Rush. And wow. What a way to end a 40-year career. Clockwork Angels. It, to me, it hits home why this band endured for so long and gained the following they had. This album features, I think, some of the heaviest music they ever recorded. Uh, and it's also their first proper concept album. That is, the whole album follows a cohesive story. So, lyricist and drummer Neil Peart, he had such a well-crafted and laid-out story that he teamed up with sci-fi author Kevin J. Anderson. Most would probably know him from writing lots of the expanded universe Star Wars novels uh, back in the day when that was still a thing. Um, so, they teamed up, they wrote a novel, I think they also commissioned some artwork to be done for a comic book, and they wound up doing a follow-up novel as well. On the artwork, Hugh Sign teamed up with with Rush again, he's been doing their artwork since uh, 1975's Crest of Steel, and he throws in a cool little Easter egg on the artwork. So the clock on the Clockwork Angels album cover shows the time of 9:12, which in 24-hour time is 21:12, the title of their seminal 1976 album. Fun little Easter egg, I, I love it. So on to the music. 
For the recording process, producer Nick Raskulinas and Neil Peart, they worked to make the drone track sound a bit more improvisational uh, than before. And that's a process they had worked on on Snakes and Arrows, their previous album. So Neil would go play through the songs a few times, get a general feel, bring it to Nick, and the two of them would uh, go in and record. And Nick would pretty much like uh, the conductor, (laughs) if you will, for Neil's orchestra of drums. And, you know, he would give him suggestions, you know, and as Neil's playing live, um, Nick would like point to this symbol and, you know, Neil would play it just to give that fun vibe. You know, it's not so mechanical uh, as the drumming may have been before. Another cool thing, this album also has live streams, which were arranged and conducted by David Campbell. And he's worked on a crap ton of movie soundtracks and he's worked with other artists like Adele and Beyonce for strings as well. What's fun about the strings is that the band decided to have a small ensemble join them on stage during the Clockwork Angels portion of the live show on the tour, and that's the only time they've ever shared the stage with somebody else. Uh, And seeing that live, it was amazing. Not only did they do the Clockwork Angels songs, but they also uh, added strings to some of their older songs. Gives it a totally different texture and feel to the songs. It's really cool. Alrighty, anyway. The album's opening up, Caravan's going to kickstart it, and we're transported on a steampunk airship heading out to fulfill whatever dreams we may have. Giddy Lee's throwing in some bass solos, Alex is shredding on his guitar, and Neil is doing what Neil does. It's a great start to the album, and it sets the stage for what's to come. Be You To Be is the next song, which is uh, stands for Brought Up To Believe. It's one of those songs that it gets heavy, even as a B-side released two years earlier. It was just heavier music from the band, which is awesome. Uh, the following song, the title track, Clockwork Angels, is a seven and a half minute long prog rock roller coaster to me. It opens softer, these kind of ethereal, like backward vocals, new music elements building towards something. Uh, backward vocals keep doing their thing in the distance of the mix. It's some strings toying around on the hi-hat. This guitar is starting to get restless as it's just keeping this one note, wanting more, and then it's a feast for the ears. I did read that the guitar solo on this song was actually the original one recorded for the demo, which is super cool that they you know, kept that for so long. Again, one type at every song, but moving through, jumping over to Halo Effect. It's a love song of sorts, at least related to the story of the album. The Wreckers I, has a really fun origin story, and it just so happens to be a, kind of a beautifully haunting song. So bassist schedule he was kind of dinking around on the guitar, not the bass. And then Lifeson kind of walks in, he picked up the bass, and was playing on that. So they wound up writing each other's parts on opposite instruments. And that it's, it's another reason why I love this band. Even though these guys had been around for, I mean, 40 years at this point, they made umpteen albums. They still tried new things and they had fun. It never seemed like it was a burden for them to go into the studio and make a new album. Headlong Flight was the second single, and if you thought that Caravan B.U.T.B. Was, was heavy, this song takes the cake. Though the story fits into the album, I think the meaning of it is a little bit more universal than just being contained to these 12 songs. It's about looking, looking back over life, all the good, all the bad. And if given the choice, 
you had the chance to, deciding that you would do it all over again. And to me, it's a bit of a companion piece to the next song that I'm going to talk about. I'm skipping over the next two songs and going right into the final song, The Garden. This song isn't just an album closer, it's a swan song. And now that the band is no longer around recording and touring, it's even more uh, poignant now than ever, and it wraps up the band's 40-year career in such a beautiful way. It's a reflective piece, looking back over the long journey, the seeds that were sown, and kind of accepting where things are at now, and just being able to rest and enjoy life. It's, it's a really beautiful piece of music. So Clockwork Angels, it closes out Rush's career with style and grace. The band was at the top of their game. They knew that, and they left gracefully. I, re I really do think that. Not just that, but they also came back around to sci-fi and spirit lyrics, which made them big when they first started out. And they nailed the concept album. Enough said. You know, I, I will love that band forever and always. Alrighty, heading into 2013. We get Random Access Memories by Daft Punk. Odd long last the Prodigal Sons return, and return did they ever. So the French duo's last studio outing from 2005, uh, Human After All, it was met with very mixed reactions. Um, not going to really get into why, but just know it wasn't met very well. So in 2010, they returned to music, not in the traditional sense. They wound up helming the soundtrack for Tron Legacy, and they hit it out of the park. That soundtrack is fun, and that's what really makes the movie for me. I love seeing their cameos in that. They did a great job with, with that soundtrack. It's one of my favorites. So on that album, uh, they wound up, they worked with an orchestra, and that kind of songwriting carried over into this album, uh, particularly around the use of studio musicians, uh, as opposed to samples and the digital technologies that they were known for. In Random Access Memories, it's polished, but it's not glossy or plastic, and it's disco, but it's not like flamboyant and dated. It's an album that you want to listen to over and over. For me, it's a modern classic, and I only gain more appreciation for it with each subsequent listen. Give Life Back to Music kicks the album off with a bang. It's rock with this blend of techno and disco. Nile Rodgers playing his guitar on a few songs, and this being one of those. And I think it's really because of his playing that you hear those disco callbacks to his uh, chic days. Another song on here, uh, Giorgio by Moradere. It's a fun little experimental techno disco homage of sorts. It's also the longest song on the album, uh, clocking in. It's over nine minutes long. Um, so the father of disco, quote unquote, uh, Giorgio Moradere, he was brought in uh, over a couple days and he was kind of more or less interviewed about his life in music and what he did throughout his his time, kind of how he became this kind of larger-than-life figure in, in the world of music. And the Daft Punk, they used his recordings, and they created this documentary-like song about his impact on the music world, particularly around uh, the world of disco. So they recorded his interview sessions, using multiple microphones, ranging from microphones of the 60s to modern ones. Now, I will tell you this, I can hear the layering of the mix pretty well. If there's like two guitar tracks, I can tell that pretty well. But for the life of me, I cannot tell the damn difference between microphones. Apparently, one of the guys in Daft Punk can, and that's 
that's his thing and he ran with it. So good for him. <laughs> uh, within, it's a turning point on the album. It's only, what, four songs in, I think. And the little thing they did on here it gives me appreciation for this group of musicians going the extra mile. Chili Gonzalez, I think he's a producer and a pianist. He was kind of tasked with writing this song to create a transition from the key of A minor of the previous three songs to the key of B flat minor of subsequent tracks. It's basic music theory, and I know it probably went over your heads, but I'll tell you that it's a little thing. They didn't need to do that to make a song that acts as a key change. You could have just written the album, done whatever you wanted, and here, here's our 13-track album. But it's the small details like that that I love about music. Instant Crush brings in another collaboration uh, with Julian Casablancas of The Strokes. Up next is Lose Yourself to Dance, and it's the first song with uh, Pharrell Williams. Uh, Touch, uh, which has been described as the core of the album, uh, features songwriter Paul Williams. You may know him from Phantom of the Paradise. Uh, he also helped write Rainbow Connection from the Muppet movie, and he's done many, many other things in the music world. He's very prolific. Um, then we get to the biggest song of the album, Get Lucky. And I have to point out, Get Lucky is song number eight, which is a little over 60% uh, through this album. This album is structured so damn well, and I have to give credit for that. I have to point that out. In our digital music age, most albums, not all, are structured where the singles take up the first few songs, and it seems to me like the rest of the albums just get wasted. We're, we're already over halfway through Random Access Memories, and we just got to the first single. That forces the listeners to sit in for the ride and enjoy the other music that's been created. In terms of uh, the song itself, I'll always jam out to it. It's catchy. Nile Rodgers is bringing that old-school disco era guitar playing back again. And, and there's a reason why the song exploded. They just have such catchy hooks, catchy melodies. I mean, it, it all works. But the album doesn't stop there. I really dig the last part of this album, these next few songs. Each one of them just flows so well from one to the other, even though there's some weird stuff going on within each song. I mean, look at the instrumental motherboard. There's some weird stuff in there, but I embrace it. Fragments of Time, another collaboration actually from uh, their 2001 album, Discovery, Todd Edwards, uh, sings on this song. Then, unfortunately, I hate throwing this in, but I have to point it out because it, it sticks out stylistically anyway. If I had to pick out my least favorite song, Doing It Right would have to be it. I mean, I've grown to like it. But I think that comes from the fact that this song does not fit into the idea of the album like every other song. Um, it's purely electronic. There's no session musicians. As where that's really what the idea was for Random Access Memories, was doing this homage, this disco throwback to the 70s and 80s. And then to just have this purely electronic song in there kind of throws it off for me. Again, I've, I've, been, I've grown to like it. Alrighty, last but not least, Contact. It's an instrumental, save for the beginning, which is a, a sample recording from Apollo 17. And it's kind of fitting the guy speaking as the last guy to walk on the moon. One thing I absolutely love on this song are the drums. They drive the song as the rest of the music builds up. And it's impressive to think that it's a studio musician doing that. It's a lot of noise. 
fun little kind of music trivia. When they were finishing the mixing of, of the song, they were playing it back in the studio. And at the end of the song, the speakers blew out. And it, it does. It gets intense and it's loud. It's it, it's a fun closer. Um, I, I guess, I don't remember who it was, whoever the producer was, kind of looked at Daft Punk and was like, F that. And then they just kind of walked out of the studio. There was an extra track on the deluxe and I think the Japanese release that's called Horizon. And it's, I just listened to it recently. I didn't know that it existed. It's very Pink Floyd-esque. And it's unlike anything else that's on the album. It's a... I guess call it a fun alternate ending to the record. Um, I, I recommend it. I'd go go give it a listen. And that's Random Access Memories. Like I said at the beginning, this record, it's a modern classic for me. It's It has that slick production, fantastic music, musicianship everywhere, and the songwriting. There's something more to gain from each listen. I understand that the self-indulgent 74-minute runtime may turn a few people off, but I tell you, it's worth every second. Alrighty, getting into the last two albums of today's episode, um, we have LaRue's sophomore effort, Trouble in Paradise, from 2014. And wow, there really aren't any other words. I mean, this album's pretty impeccable to me, considering all the -the behind-the-scenes things that were going on leading up to the release. And the title, Trouble in Paradise, really, it's an appropriate umbrella of a title, uh for the work that that we got out of it. So LaRue's first album from 2009, it was a collaboration between Allie Jackson, who's now the sole member, and Ben Langmaid. And what would become Trouble in Paradise started off with the two of them writing and recording together. Uh, but Langmaid departed in 2012 due to creative differences. And that has now left Jackson as the sole member. Langmaid still has writing credits. Um, I think five of the nine songs, in fact. Um, so let's, let's jump in. As the music starts on the opener, Uptight Downtown, you just, this vibe that you get from this album, you know that it's going to be different from what they did before. Jackson described the direction of the album in some interviews as, uh, warmer and sexier. And I always come back to those terms because I think they sum up the sound on here pretty damn well. But it's deceiving. Because when you look at the lyrics on a lot of this album, it's a, it's a breakup album, more or less. You know, their relationship and creative differences getting in the way and deteriorating led to what this has sounded like. So it's, it's a deceiving thing, but I really enjoy it. And when she says that it's sexier, I don't think she means sexier in a sexual way. It's uh, sexy like in a classy, cool kind of thing. It's not dirty at all. I'll say Uptight Downtown really shows that the five-year gap between albums was was worth the wait. Uh, on next song, Kiss and Not Tell, was uh, the straw that broke the camel's back, according to Jackson. When they were recording uh, a guitar part for the song, Langmay didn't really like the direction they were going in. She was putting in all of her effort, and he just he left that night, and that was that. Uh, promoting her the most recent album, Supervision, uh, Jackson recently stated that the Two haven't spoken since. And lyrically, there are notes about this breakup. Uh, Jackson said that the song is, quote, uh, the feeling of when you're in a relationship and you both know the problems you might come up against, but choose to ignore them, end quote. On a brighter note, Chili Gonzalez, who was on Daft Punk's album, 
uh, he makes another appearance on the piano here. Cruel Sexuality is the first song on the album that was not written by Lang May. This is the first chronological listening of just Ellie Jackson doing her thing. And it's such a well-sung song, as with many other songs. She sings with such emotion and flirts with the, the sensual vocal delivery that I, I really enjoy. She sings really well on this album. Jumping over to Sexotech. Again, it's the contrast of the upbeat sound to the lyrics uh, about a couple not on the same page. You know, the main character of the song, she wants to settle down, and then he's off hooking up and doing whatever. And it's about the loneliness that that creates inside of her. Uh, going over to the longest, longest song on the album, and certainly the most bassiest song, you're going to feel this one in your chest if you have a good subwoofer. Silent Partner. I think it's because of the the heaviness and the darker tone. It's a bit of a lash-out song, uh, I think, towards Langmaid. It's also the most non-organic, I feel. Some of the other songs, you have uh, some guitar in there. There's a song later that's uh, saxophone. And I think on Lay Me Down Gently. But as we're doing it right on Random Access Memories didn't stick for me, this song works. And since I mentioned it, I'll bring it up real quick. Lay Me Down Gently is probably the core of the album. Um, I, it was one of their best collaborated on songs, the two of them writing together. Um, it's it's sad and it's sweet. I would, I'd go give that one a listen to. So with one album still to go, I'm going to wrap up the Rue's Trouble in Paradise. This album, it's melancholic. It's this lush, vibrant soundscape juxtaposed with these somber lyrics of heartbreak and moving on. It's it's a bit of a bait and switch for that, I think. And it but it's fantastic for it. Out of her three albums, like this is by far her most stellar work. It's a fun album to listen to. I mean, just purely from a sound point of view. Driving with the windows down on a summer day, or hanging out in the backyard sipping a drink. It's the kind of music that it makes you hard to think that you're listening to a breakup album because of it, but it's super fun. I enjoy it. Rounding out these first five albums is what I think is a bit of a breath of fresh air for pop music. So let's talk about Taylor Swift's 1989 from 2014. I feel like Taylor Swift, she gets a bad rep. You know, looking online, I don't see many positive things about her, that she's lying or doing this and doing that. And, you know, I... Since I don't pay attention to the media very much, I think Taylor is a very talented young woman, and she's made a huge impact with her fans, and her songwriting, I think, is is what makes that. And those qualities come out on this 80s-inspired synth-pop record. You know, Swift had written most of her first three albums, with the exception of working uh, with some of the same close collaborators. Um... On Red, she opened up and she worked with even more people. And some of those people return on 1989. Um, people like Max Martin and Shellback, um, those two collaborate a lot. Jack Antonoff, and there's a few others on there as well. And I know most of you probably have never heard of those names, but they have worked for years in the industry on a lot of popular things, including uh, Britney Spears, Katy Perry, NSYNC, Usher, Adele, Maroon 5, 
the list of the artists they've worked with and the list of awards they've won goes on and on. So it's really no surprise having these kind of prolific people uh, working on a pop album from one of the biggest entertainment acts of the later 2000s, early 2010s, night, that 1989 turned out the way it did. Um, I had mentioned it's a fresh breath of fresh air for pop music. And I say that um, because it's, I think it comes down to the lyrics. You know, it's pop music on the sound, um, but the lyrics are something totally different. Most, not all, pop music, it doesn't talk about relationships like Swift does. And that's very much her strong, her strong shoe when it comes to writing songs. Um, and all of it, she leans into that strength. Like I said, music, it's pop lyrics. It's, you know, they're not sexual, they're not misogynistic, and it's not violent. Those, to me, are some of the more prevalent lyrical tones of modern pop music. Again, it's not always exclusive to just those three. But anyway, let's get into it. So we start with Welcome to New York, which is a fun synth pop, bit of an anthem opener. And I think it's pretty straightforward. Taylor Swift, she was going through a change, so she moved to the Big Apple, New York City, and it had an impact on her life, and she wrote about it. I bring that up because the criticism toward the song to me is just silly. Uh, more or less, it's about people complain that it's not encompassing all the facets of the city, that there's, you know, she only scratches the surface, doesn't dig deep enough. Sounds silly. Again, it's just a simple, fun song. Blank Space was the second single off the album, and it reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100 within three weeks. The real kicker with that, she wound up by doing that succeeded herself, beating out Shake It Off, making her the first woman to do so on the 56-year uh, history of that particular chart. Something that I love about Taylor Swift, she knows how the media perceives her, and she isn't afraid to write about it. Case in point... Blank Space is a satire on the media's perception of her relationships. Then we have Style. Style is moody, and it's about imperfect relationships. And it's also a moment of growth for Swift. In her earlier lyrics of love and relationships, her stance was very much more, I'm right and you're wrong, which is a bit of a country writing trope to me. Um, and here it's much more than that. You know, her stance now is, look, we both have issues. We're both at fault, um, which is, which is really cool. It's, it's, it's a growing moment for her. Not, not as a musician necessarily, just as an adult and it, it shows on here. Uh, and it's built around this guitar riff that it, it sets the tone. I think it was actually written by, uh, one of the producers, possibly Jack Antonoff. Don't, uh, quote me on that. It's a little sorrowed. It's a little sensual. The next two tracks, Out of the Woods and All You Had to Do Was Stay, continue that relationship reflection of style, which actually many believe are about Harry Styles after their relationship ended in uh, 2013. I really enjoy the latter of the two of them. To me, uh, Out of the Woods just has this tonal shift from style that it doesn't blend as well um, for me, but I, I really enjoy All You Had to Do Was Stay. I'm going to go over to one of the biggest songs of that year, Shake It Off. And I mean, come on. With the rhythm in this song and the melodies, it's hard to stay in place when you hear it. I mean, all I want to do anyway, I just want to dance and move around. And back to my comments on music and lyrics earlier. It's such a catchy song that you forget what it's about 
And it's about not worrying what others think of you. You're just going to shake it off. Again, she knows how people perceive her, and she writes about it on here. Um, musically, it's this fun drum beat, some saxophone, some trumpet going on. And for being a great pop song, there's, there's actually quite a lot packed into it. You know, it's really great songwriting on everyone's part. After Shake It Off, the album kind of drops off. Um, I think it's a bit of a front-heavy album. There's a couple singles on the latter half, the biggest being Bad Blood, which I hate saying it, you know, personally least favorite track. I understand why people like it. I just think that she's written better, better songs. That's all. It's still enjoyable, just least favorite out of eh, within the context of the album. I do think fans of classic Swift are going to enjoy How You Get the Girl. And on this song, there's just moments of her and acoustic guitar that harkens back to her Nashville country origins in a way, again, mixed with this pop thing going on. I Know Places has hints of DNA of what Swift would go to do with her follow-up album, Reputation. The last song on the album, Clean, it's a great closing song. It takes the theme of hardships and relationships from the album and wraps it up by saying, move on to bigger, better things in life. Let's be clean of these things and let's just move on. So wrapping up 1989, it's a really fun album by a talented young woman. Swift isn't afraid of her imperfections and I think in fact celebrates those things, which is probably why people latch onto her so well. She's just, for being a modern celebrity, a modern pop star, she's really okay with letting down those barriers, I think. You know, I, I give her props for that. But that's also probably why critics hit her so hard. You know, critics don't see her as being perfect. And Swift doesn't really cater to anyone but herself. You know, she's on this album, she really leaned into her pop sensibilities as she started off on Red. And it pays off. She knows how to communicate loss, hardship, as it relates to relationships. And it's just coded in this 80s synth pop soundscape. It's really fun. And with that, we're at the end of the first top five albums of the 2010s. Thank you for joining me this week on Rock and Talk with Dak. I know it was a longer episode, but it's fun talking about these. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple and Google Podcasts, as well as Spotify, so you never miss a beat. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a rating on iTunes, check out Instagram and Twitter, or simply spread the word and tell a friend. It all helps. This presentation is made possible by listeners like you. So thank you for your support and tuning in. Be sure to tune in next Monday for the other top five, uh, the last, I should say, top five albums of the 2010s. And remember, stay healthy out there, wash your hands, but most importantly, stay positive. We'll see you next time.